You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 124. This week, a big thank you goes out to Shane for choosing to support the podcast over on Patreon. By supporting the show, he gains access to special Patreon-only episodes and that warm, tingly feeling from being awesome. Head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to check it out. This week is our second on the turmoil in Russia in during 1917. The First Revolution of 1917 was a textbook definition of a spontaneous and unplanned action by a massive number of people within Petrograd, the capital city of Russia, previously known as St. Petersburg. The leaders of the future revolutions, and the most famous Russians of those revolutions, were barely involved. Some were not even in the country. Trotsky had been spending the year in New York. Lenin would not arrive until April. The First Revolution is usually called the February Revolution, but you will often see it using dates from March. I think this is something that requires some explanation. At this point in history, the Russian Empire was still using the Julian calendar, as opposed to the Gregorian calendar that most of the rest of the world was using, and which we still use today. This meant that in 1917, the Russian calendar, using the Julian system, was 12 days behind the Gregorian calendar. This creates some date differences depending upon whether or not the dates that you are looking at have been translated. I bring this up so early in this episode because I'm going to endeavor to give you all the dates as Julian dates, putting most of the events happening in the last two weeks of February, and I will be attempting to use this on all of the dates that I give for the entirety of our series on the revolutions, but I might have missed a few. This conversion has actually been a problem uh, since pretty much the beginning of the podcast, with my sources sometimes using different dates, making things very confusing. But this is the first time that we will have an actual event with a name after, which is named after the month in which it occurred, so I thought I would bring it up now. It would have all been okay if the Russians would have started their little revolution in the first two weeks of February or March, but unfortunately they did not take into account possible confusion by future historians, either in February or October in 1917. 
I guess I should also mention that I am one of those people who believe that for the most part, exact dates don't matter in history anyway. The sequence and relation of events is more important than the exact date and time. That said, I have attempted to be as accurate as possible in all of my dates. That is a long way of saying, if you do your own research and think I'm absolutely crazy because my don't my dates don't match up, for once, I am not the one at fault. The obvious people to blame are Julius Caesar and Pope Gregory XIII. But back to the events of 1917. The root of the problem for the Tsar in 1917 was that he did not really have many people of consequence willing to stand up and defend the monarchy. The public faith in the monarch was at an all-time low, with rumors of a black block within the court poisoning the Tsar's mind. This is where all those Rasputin stories come from. It was rumored that this group was seeking to make peace with Berlin. In, in general, Rasputin's influence over policy is grossly exaggerated, but whether or not all of the rumors about him are true is not the story that we will be telling today. What matters is that this is just one reason that the people of Petrograd had almost no faith in their government. There was even some that justified the revolution as their patriotic duty, because they believed that the Tsar and those members of his court that were close to him were about to betray the country. This was mostly just another way to justify what was about to happen. The revolution would begin as a series of strikes in the last week of February, but their actual route was back in January. It was during this month, on the 9th, that a series of strikes was staged to commemorate Bloody Sunday. It had been on Bloody Sunday that the Cossacks had been called upon to brutally put down the protests during the 1905 revolution. The general unrest would continue from this date until February the 23rd, International Women's Day. It would be on this day that the strikes and protests all of the, over the city would begin to gain momentum that nothing could stop. This started as a day where the women of Petrograd began a march towards the center of the city, as a way of protesting for equal rights, with a healthy mix of protests against the food shortages that continued to plague the city thrown in as well. It was common for the women of Petrograd to have to line up all night to get a loaf of bread at a store, with many of them being turned away with nothing due to shortages after waiting for so long. This caused the flames to smolder, but then rumors of even more food shortages began to fan the flames. By the afternoon of the 23rd, 100,000 workers had joined in the protests by going on strike. The next day, 150,000 workers would take to the streets to join in the protests. February 25th would be something of a turning point for the movement. On that day, 200,000 workers marched towards the center of Petrograd. They overwhelmed the police and military units, and more were called in to assist. The protesters, instead of antagonizing the soldiers, began to attempt to win them over to their side. The fact that this was even a mild possibility should tell you quite a lot. The turning point was, and this is quite po possibly an apocryphal story, was on the Nevsky Prospect. This was the center of the protests, and it was also here that a young girl approached a unit of soldiers with a bouquet of red roses. Now, roses were a symbol of both peace and the revolution. The officer in charge of the units took the flowers, and the crowd erupted in a cheer. This was a symbol that this time, unlike on so many previous occasions, the government could no longer count on its soldiers. It might have still been possible to put down the revolution at this point on the 25th, just, just maybe. If more food could have been delivered into the city to feed everyone, it might have taken enough wind out of the sails of the protesters, many of which were still protesting the food situation. But unfortunately, this was just not possible. 
That is not to say that there were not efforts to stop the protests. While the incident with the flowers and the girl makes for a good story, it did not prevent some clashes between the military and the mobs around the city. On the 26th, there were several instances of units firing into the protesters, which just served to harden the resolve of the citizens. Through all of this, the leadership in the city were always downplaying the situation when reporting to the Tsar, who was at military headquarters. They did not want to admit that the situation in which they had been entrusted was slowly spiraling out of control. This prevented more military from being moved into the city early enough in the process to make a difference. But it's not like the capital was not well garrisoned. There were already 180,000 soldiers inside the city, and 150,000 more close enough to rapidly move in. However, these were not the old reliable troops that the government had depended on to maintain order before the war. The city was usually guarded by guards regiments, very historic, very well disciplined, very reliable, with the last piece, the reliability, being the most important. However, due to the attrition of the war, the troops in the city in 1917 were a far cry from the old guards, who had been sent to the front and then had been replaced by troops which were far less steady and far less reliable. As the protests got more and more violent, a greater percentage of these troops either refused to fire or deliberately fired above the heads of the protesters. For many others, after having fired into the crowds on the 26th, they began to have second thoughts about the whole situation. These thoughts would turn into full-scale mutiny on the 27th. These mutinies were often led by junior officers, many of whom came from lower-class backgrounds and were more democratic in their political leanings than the officers above them. It seems to have started in one regiment who refused to follow orders and instead marched out into the streets to join the protesters. Then it spread to all of the other units within a week, and there were almost no loyal military units left into the capital after that week. More than just the manpower that joined into the protests, the soldiers also helped by breaking into the arsenal and distributing weapons including 40,000 rifles and 330,000 revolvers. Then they moved on to looting the weapons factories around the city, netting another 100,000 weapons. This kicked the revolution into high gear, as revolutionaries were now armed about as well as anybody who could be sent in to stop them. Another effect of the military involvement was a change in how the protesters behaved. When this all started, there had been a large portion of women and young people among the masses. They were not military-minded, they were not very well organized, and they had been more optimistic about what they hoped to achieve and change in the government through their actions. Now that the military units began to take control, the entire situation changed. They moved on the phone exchanges, railway stations, and military targets. They vastly increased the violence and the level of destruction happening in the city. Finally, they gave form and structure to the masses. They were able to organize groups around military units and use them for specific purposes and be sure that at least some core of the people that were sent on these missions inside of those masses would listen to orders and instructions. However, there was still not an overall set of leaders of the movement, preventing it from being as efficient as it could be. world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. 
I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. As I mentioned several times already, the February Revolution was not led from the beginning by a group of people trying to orchestrate events. However, a group did begin to coalesce on the 27th, by which point the revolution was already happening, and they were mostly just trying to get control of the inertia already created by the masses. They created the Provisional Executive Committee of the Soviet of Workers' Deputies on the 27th, and it would have its first meeting on that day. That meeting then led to the creation of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies, which was essentially a group of representatives elected by the various groups around the city. It was during this stage that the revolution really moved out of the hands of the workers and the women who had started it. When the first session of the Petrograd Soviet met, two-thirds of the representatives were soldiers, even though the soldiers only made up about a quarter of the population of the city. This was due to the simple fact that it was so much easier for military units to organize and elect delegates. However, such a large body had serious difficulties making any real decisions, since there were so many different groups involved and very little time to try and gain consensus. Therefore, most of the decisions would end up being made by the executive committee. This took the power away from both the citizens and the soldiers, and put it in the hands of just a few men who, before the revolution, had been leaders of various socialist groups around the city. This included groups like the Mensheviks, the Bolsheviks, and other groups that would continue to play a big role in our story. Throughout the discussions of the executive committee, one thread ran true. The members of the committee did not want to try to create a government. Their greatest fear was that a violent counter-revolution would seek to unseat them. Therefore, instead of trying to form and lead a real government, they instead looked to the Duma to take control of the situation now that the Tsar was no longer in control. The Duma had been created as part of the 1905 revolution, as a concession by the Tsar as a way for the Russian people to participate in representative government, and it did have some power within that government. However, over the next decade, the representatives in the body became more and more elite. This moved them away from any real connection to the vast majority of Russians, which would strain their relationship with them during the war. In 1915, there was a new collection of members within the Duma who called themselves the Progressive Bloc, and throughout the next two years, they pushed for and received several compromises from the Tsar. This included the removal of some conservative ministers. However, the Tsar would never go as far as they wanted when it came to progressive reforms, and this gave the progressives an excuse to focus all of the blame for the war on the Tsar instead of trying to take any blame for themselves. This then also gave them a really good excuse for abandoning him in 1917 and siding with the people of Petrograd. However, they did not initially just swoop in and take control. Much like the committee, there were concerns in the Duma that if they tried to assert power too early and too strongly, there would be backlash. They were just not sure if they could, or if they even should, take a leadership role in the revolution. 
The Duma had two options. They could seek to oppose the entire revolution, a choice that became less wise every day as the revolution continued, since they could only do it if they believed they had the strength to sub- and support to overcome the people. Or they could just go along, and at some point try to control and contain the masses, which was the direction that they chose. They would begin to take a more active role in the situation when it became clear that the movement was coalescing around the Soviet, which was beginning to wield considerable power, and also gave a conduit for the Duma to interact with these groups. To take control, there would be a 12-member committee created, and it would be called, and this is quite a name, so stay with me here, the Temporary Committee of Duma Members for the Restoration of Order in the Capital and the Establishment of Relations with Individuals and Institutions. That's lengthy. This would then become the core of the provisional government, when on March 1st, the Soviets agreed to support it as the government of Russia. The support came with conditions, but all that mattered was that Russia had a government again, mostly. There would still be some resistance around the city, mostly senior military officers or officials in the old regime, with whatever soldiers were still loyal to them. They were slowly mopped up, though, with the last holdouts being cornered and massacred in the Astoria Hotel. Overall, 4,000 government officials were killed by the revolutionaries during the events of February. One person we've not talked much about today is the Tsar himself. His fate, even if he did not know it at the time, was sealed as soon as the Duma chose to side with the revolution and with its more progressive members. Alexander Kerensky would give a speech saying that the Tsar must be deposed, quote, by terrorist methods if there is no other way, end quote after which he was cheered just for saying that. Over the course of the previous years, the Tsar had become more isolated than ever before. In 1916, he had taken command of the armies, meaning that he would be blamed for their constant failures. Early in the protest, Nicholas left Petrograd, but before he did, he said that he would be going to the Duma to declare his intention to appoint a new cabinet, with the hopes that this move would quell the calls for abdication. However, just a few hours after announcing his visit, he instead changed his mind. Instead of going to discuss things with the Duma, he left immediately for military headquarters. Before he left the capital, he gave a signed order for the dismissal of the Duma, with instructions that it should be introduced if necessary. When it was used later, after the Duma had already joined the revolution, they chose to ignore it, officially breaking the government from the Tsar. On March 1st, the Tsar left army headquarters, with the intention of making the 500-mile journey back to Petrograd. However, it became clear as they traveled that they were not going to make it to the city, due to the violence along the rail lines. Therefore, they stopped at Peskov, where the final events of the Tsar's reign would occur. On March 1st, he also received a cable from the chief of staff, Alexiev, which basically stated that the army would not be able to support him over the revolutionaries in Petrograd. Alexia's message would say, quote, A revolution in Russia will mean a disgraceful termination of the war. The army is most intimately connected with the life in the rear. It may be confidently stated that disorders in the rear will produce the same result among the armed forces. It is impossible to ask the army to calmly to wage war while a revolution is in progress to the rear. The youthful makeup of the present army and its officer staff, among whom a very high proportion consists of reservists and commissioned university students, gives no grounds for assuming that the army will not react to the events occurring in Russia. With the army apparently abandoning him, Nicholas had no choice but to abdicate. 
In these situations, the crown would generally pass to the son. But the Tsar's son was a sick child, and the Tsar knew that the strains of leading a country would probably kill him. Therefore, he also abdicated for his son as well. This then meant that the crown passed to the Tsar's brother, Michael, who then advocated as well. The Romanov dynasty, after ruling Russia for hundreds of years, was now over. Those who saw the Tsar later that evening, while eating his dinner, would say that the Tsar sat peacefully and calmly, uh, but he, quote, he kept up conversation, and only his eyes, which were sad, thoughtful, and staring into the distance, and his nervous movements when he took a cigarette, betrayed his inner disturbance, end quote. In August, the Tsar and his family would be evacuated to Siberia out of fear for their lives, as the country began to spiral into its second revolution. The family was then denied asylum in England due to the fears of the reaction of the Labour Party, and on the night of July 16, 1918, after moving back from Siberia by the Bolsheviks, the Tsar, the Tsarina, and their five children were all killed, a tragic death even for a mostly ineffective ruler. With the abdication of the Tsar, the February Revolution was complete. They had overthrown the government. Now the question became what to do next. In Petrograd, the workers tore down the statue of Alexander III. In towns all over Russia, statues of the Tsar were removed. But that did not mean that everybody was ready for a transition to whatever came next. In Petrograd, the new government was defined by trying to be whatever the Tsar wasn't, but that was not necessarily what the people in the countryside, many of which were uneducated peasants, thought they were getting. In much of Russia, there was just not enough political education for people to be able to frame a government that was headed not by a single person, a Tsar, a president, a premier, whatever they wanted to call them, it was difficult for many to see the difference. This type of misunderstanding, layered on top of the class divisions which were all pervasive throughout Russian society, was about to cause problems. This was, of course, on top of all the other problems that had initially led to the revolution, all of which were still there too, and they would have to be addressed. It would be all of these problems that would mean that the new government, the provisional government, was about to be in for a very rough ride during the summer of 1917, a ride that we will chronicle next episode. <laughs> 